Hello and welcome back to QC Uncut, uncut, unedited, uncensored conversation with local newsmakers. I'm your host, Sean Leary, and today my guest is Paul Ferguson, local author, musician, burlesque host, and man of many hats. Paul, it's great to have you on the show. I, you've been on the show before, and you say like you haven't, but I could swear that you've been a guest on the show before. You are lying 100%. <laughs> I have never been on the show. Uh, I would have been, but you know, I have to have something to talk about. That's right. That's right. So tell me what you got to talk about. You've got a new book. We were talking about it a little bit earlier, but the people weren't listening, so please tell us about what you got going on and how it came about. Uh, well, I have a new book out. Uh, it's called The Tower of Bellwether Moss. Uh, it's a historical fiction set in 1955 in Cornwall, England. Uh, so a time when England has spent 10 years and is just now coming back from World War II. Um, and uh, my main character is a stonemason, a Welsh stonemason who's hired to do some uh, repair work on a estate in Cornwall at Tintagel, which is the legendary birthplace of King Arthur. Mm-hmm. And he uh, is an Arthurian um, from birth, basically. He always was raised on these stories, so he thought, hey, this would be a good idea. And he goes, and he takes the job, and hijinks ensue. Mm-hmm. Uh, he encounters uh, spooky things, and uh, the legends of yore are uh, coming to him in his dreams, and it's uh, it's a fun time. How long have you been working on this, and what gave you the idea to do it? What is it about? I know you're like me. You have a lot of different ideas. How, what is your process like? How do you choose the idea that you're going to pursue, and how did this idea shove itself to the forefront? Uh, well, I do have a lot of ideas, and they come from different places. Sometimes you wake up and you go, you know what? That's a thing, mm-hmm. and I should make that a thing. In this case, it was really unusual. Uh, it's been many, many years in the making, um, probably eight or nine years ago. Uh, I wanted to spend some months doing uh, short stories because I had laid off doing that for a while. And, you know, the short story, it's great, but you have to have an idea for a short story, too. So I went out on uh, Facebook, and I said to people, hey, give me the name of a story uh, that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I'll pick a title, and I'll spend a week writing that story, and then I'll post it, and then we'll do it again. So eight or nine weeks in a row, we did that. And one of the titles that was suggested was The Tower of Bellwether Moss, Mm -hmm. which, you know, struck me. So I started thinking, well, how does that... What is that story about? And so, well, I have a tower, obviously, and then <laughs> and there's some moss, and there's probably uh, some moss. Um, and then, if, well, best towers are medievalish towers, uh, uh, so I put that in, and then suddenly I was researching Arthurian legends, which I had studied in my undergrad years anyway. And uh, next thing you know, it, it was not a short story; it mm-hmm. was a it was a novel, and it, it took many many years to write because you know I've published, you know. 15, 20 books as an editor mm-hmm. uh, in between, um, plus having a full-time job uh, and other gigs. So, yeah, it took a long time uh, to get there, um, but it was a long, interesting research process, and and uh, we're finally done with it. Who is your favorite character in the book, and what do you like most about this book? Mm. Well, uh, I, I think the main character probably has to be my, my favorite. Uh, I put a lot of myself into him. Um, as a writer, you know, people are always saying, oh, this character has this. Is that you? No, that's not me. But there's a lot of me in every single character that I write. You know how that works. And uh, so Llewellyn um, is uh, 45. He's in relatively good shape. They can, he can see the other side of that coming. Um, he's been working his entire life as a mason and is looking forward to this chance to, for many months, 
months or a year just kind of work on his own just mm-hmm. be completely in charge of a project people leave him alone do what he does best uh, get the solitude um, and so he's got this quiet dignity while still he's recovering from some things that some mistakes he made when he was younger and uh, he's a recovering alcoholic and he's trying to you know rebuild his life in that way and then he finds himself dropped into the situation where he's having prophetic dreams and, and hearing ghosts and and having to deal with that. So it challenges his ability to uh, maintain his uh, his quiet dignity. And I like that a lot about him. Um, there are things I admire about that character that I don't necessarily have in myself all the time. And so it's good to write that in, into somebody else. Um, you've written this predominantly over the last two years, over the pandemic. How has that time, which has shaped all of of us and changed all of us um, shaped you your uh, process in regard to this book has shaped you creatively and how has your changing mindset impacted these characters and the narrative that's being told uh, I think the biggest impact of the pandemic has simply been the energy mm-hmm. um, you know like a lot of people the uh, the pandemic has led to depression mm-hmm. and it's and uh, you and I've talked about this yeah. before where you know sadness is a great motivator for yes. creativity depression takes the life out of yeah, you and not, and yeah. you can't do anything you just want to sit at home and not um, so the the biggest impact on on this I mean I finished the draft of this book um, I think it's sadness is an action depression is a negation yes exactly um, I mean I finished the draft of this book 13 months ago Mm -hmm. and it took a full year to get the final edits and the you know the cover art lined up and and everything put together and and it was a frustrating period because you know there are months at a time where my editors are reading my stuff and i'm just waiting for them and then i get their replies and i'm like god do i want to deal with this right now and then you have to sit down and say okay this is what they said needed to change um but uh I think the last few months uh, I've kind of kicked in again. I feel motivated and, and, and more aware of uh, the potential. So this book's done. I've got some book signings coming up. They haven't been scheduled yet, but uh, uh, I've got some exciting uh, news that should be coming in the next few days on that. Um, I've got the next publication, I think, lined up that might be done by the end of December, and then we'll move on and up for there. Now... Are all of your novels historical-based fiction? I tend to do that. It's not a thing I planned, but you know, I have uh, I have three history degrees, so I have this tendency to do historical things. What I like to do is pick a time and a place that existed, pick some characters that actually existed, and then build a story around them using a new character that I made up mm-hmm. as the as the focus. So, uh, my first book was 1904 Milwaukee. Uh, my second book was 1880s Central Illinois. Uh, this one 1955 Cornwall. The next major novel will be 1920s Quad Cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Have to do with Bix or Looney or any of those? Guys? Um, you know, Looney is mentioned. This comes in tw- sort of at the tail end of the Looney period where uh, where he's been not yet arrested, but he's on the run. Mm-hmm. Uh, his empire has crumbled, and in my 
book, uh, that empire will be picked up by uh, rival gangs of vampires who are in control of Prohibition era alcohol and blood um, and uh, dealing with that. So uh, Looney is mentioned. Um, I will say that the villain who will go unnamed in the book, I've decided just to give him a title, mm-hmm. um, was a prominent local school owner and organizer, and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> Is it Paul Norton? I'm not going to say. <laughs> but uh, so in in the in the end, the, to answer your question, yes, all of my stuff is historical fiction, um, and then there tends to be supernatural or spooky elements in there somehow. How did you get onto that track? Because it's certainly not a common one. Um, you mentioned that you have you know three history degrees. What is it that interested you in that so much? And also, how did you find the supernatural kind of bending into that? Well, Supernatural came first uh, when I was, uh, well, back in in junior high, I started reading Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft, and then high school, moved to Stephen King. Um, And so the spooky thing was always there. Um, You know, I'm obsessed with all the old Vincent Price movies from, Mm -hmm. you know, the 60s, and so that was there. And then when I became a a historian in college, um, I, I had... You know, several ideas for books that I wanted to write, and and nothing was really coming together. And I had one great, I felt, short story that I had written in high school, which was the kernel of what became my first novel. Mm -hmm. And it was always okay; it was never great, uh, but I felt like it's one of the better things I'd written. It was it was pretty interesting, and it was very Lovecraftian and and and. reminiscent of Poe and that it's got that spooky stuff and twist endings and and things. So um, I uh, was looking at that story one day and I realized, wait a minute, I just spent five years of my life researching this basically 25-year period in Milwaukee history Mm -hmm. at the turn of the century. Why don't I move this story to there? Mm -hmm. Because I know the location. I know everything that happened. I can put historical figures in that I've already studied and written about. And so that's how it started. Mm -hmm. So I built a, a character that represented you know my perspective who could witness all of these things happening and he's got historical figures rotating around him uh, moving in and out of his story and the supernatural seemed to be a natural thing to to put in there so to speak um, what's your opinion on I know that there are various people that have called Lovecraft out for his his work as xenophobic and blah 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 and all that stuff um, how do you feel I know you're a huge Lovecraft fan and I'm a, a big Lovecraft fan too not as big as you I, I don't think, but nevertheless, um, what are your feelings in regard to that? Um, I think all of those points are accurate and valid. Um, he was xenophobic. Um, the interesting thing about Lovecraft on, on the xenophobic side is you know, he grew up in Providence, Rhode Island in a rich white neighborhood. Right. Yeah. Um, and then for a short period of time, he moved to Brooklyn. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And he was surrounded by brown people. Mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, my God, I don't know how to handle this. And he wrote some short stories that uh, were xenophobic. And some of them were openly right. xenophobic. And other times he just he uses the, the alien right. um, and uh, to get his, his feelings out about feeling surrounded mm-hmm. uh, by a population that he didn't know or understand. Um, so, yeah, while he was in New York, he wrote some xenophobic stuff. Um, he has some racism issues. Mm-hmm. As well, uh, which again are reflected uh, by the time that he grew up in. But that's you cannot. Some people um, say, well, you know, look at the time he grew up in. No, if you look at the stuff that he wrote 
and the time he grew up in, he's even beyond some of the racism of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, what I will give him credit for is, uh, this comes out in his letters uh, uh, later in his life, he writes to people and he says, you know what? This was not a good thing that I did. Right. And he owns up to some of that, and I appreciate that. Um, does that fully make up for it? No. But then you you get into the issue of how do you separate the art from the artist, right. uh, which is a constant thing that we're battling today. constant battle, yeah. I mean, because it's the same thing with you know, any, you know, everybody has flaws. And mean, and we all are always changing. We're always evolving. The person that you know you or I was ten, fifteen years ago is not the person that we are now because people evolve and they learn, and and it's it's a very tricky situation. You know, look at John Lennon. At the time he was writing Imagine, he was you know treating women horribly and you know doing you know neglecting his son and all these other things that were not exactly great from a human being's perspective, especially for one who is writing about you know everybody living in peace and love. Um, but yeah, it is. It's it's a different. It's a difficult thing. It's a problematic thing to try and separate what the person is writing from the way that they're acting and the environment that they're in at the time. Yeah, I I think it's important not to look at at Lovecraft or any artist as you know who are they to me, so much as what is their work to me. And with Lovecraft, you know, the the key is. You know his his central theme is we're not only alone in this world, but as a world we are alone mm-hmm. in the universe, and the universe doesn't care about us. Right. So what are we going to do with that? Yeah. Um, so it's that uh, that quiet, desperate nihilism uh, mm-hmm. that I I always appreciated, and, and uh, as an undercurrent of horror. I mean that's mm-hmm. that, that's a great way to start horror. Is you don't matter. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do about it? Well, and I think that's why he had all these you know, massively powerful supernatural beings that were lurking on the periphery and would constantly pop up on people to show that they are completely insignificant and just specks in the darkness. You know, you can look at Cthulhu and he's like the darkness of the universe and the uncertainty of the universe and the void. Right. And inevitably, you know, these, the, his stories are about stopping that void Mm -hmm. from coming. Once the void's there, you're done. You can't fight it. All you can do is put it off. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yes, that, that the, the entire fight is how do we not get to a place we can't handle? Mm-hmm. How do you think that the, the times of the last four years are going to reflect in when people look back upon? Um, because we were talking about this earlier. We had lunch before we were, had this conversation. And one of the things we talked about is the fact that people can't trust the media nowadays in a lot of ways. Of course, not quadcities.com. You can always trust us. But you know, <laughs> but I'm talking about like the national media. You see, you know, MSNBC is very partisan towards one side and Fox is very partisan towards the other side. Now CNN has been caught in a number of falsehoods and, you know, Chris Cuomo is being suspended because he was covering up for his brother and covering facts up. And when people feel like they can't trust what is being presented to them as fact, then they try to, people are always trying to make sense of their lives. They're always trying to find a certainty because there's so much uncertainty that surrounds our lives. And when they don't feel that that's there, they tend to cleave to people like we were mentioning Trump, who may be completely full of shit, but they act certain. Mm-hmm. They act like they're confident in what mm-hmm. they may be full of crap, but they're damn certain of the crap that they're spewing out there. And people want that certainty, whether subconsciously or otherwise. How do you think, do you think that we're going to see a lot of people 
like Lovecraft, we bring up the you know his fear of the void and the way that his his fiction reflected that. Right now, we're in something of a spiritual and informational void, and people are afraid of that. Um, do you think there's going to be a lot of fiction and a lot of work that's going to reflect that? nihilism and that uncertainty I think it's probably inevitable I mean if you look at um, you know a, a good example is uh, British fiction in the 20s mm-hmm. um, oh yeah British fiction in the 20s is some of the darkest stuff of the 20th century yeah. because they lost so much population and so much infrastructure and so much wealth fighting World War One that we didn't have to deal with. We came in at the tail end mm-hmm. and went, ta-da, um, and, and it was over. Um, they had to deal with losing three out of ten males mm-hmm. uh, of, of fighting age and and that definitely impacted their their fiction um, and even before that in the um, in the 1880s when Germany was in the rise uh, British fiction started making Germans the villain mm-hmm. the, the, forever the French had been the villains now the Germans are the villain because they can see that, that that's growing and they're worried right. about it um, and you start to see um, Alien fiction coming out of Britain. I keep using Britain because I studied Britain a lot. But, um, you know, War of the Worlds, that's not necessarily about aliens. Mm-hmm. That's about those who are alien to us. Right. Um, so what's what will that do now? I, I think what's going to happen, I think what's inevitable in, in terms of the media issue is... I think people are already doing this, and and I think hopefully they should uh, turn away from what people are telling you Mm -hmm. and go back to what you know Mm -hmm. and what you experience and what you can see for yourself and what the people around you are are experiencing. And so that um, life uh, has naturally become more insular because we've been forced to stay home so much more and not be with each other and start to reflect. I don't know that we're all reflecting inwardly as much as we should necessarily, but I think that we're taking the information we're getting in a different way. Mm-hmm. In terms of fiction, I can tell you what I'm doing. Um, this uh, 1920s book that I'm writing about the Quad Cities, or Tri-Cities more accurately then, um, the villain is an anti-vaxxer. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to say that, <laughs> but that's what they are. And the good guys say, hey, if we take this thing, it'll be all right. And the bad guys say, well, that would be natural, would it? Mm-hmm. And become monsters mm-hmm. as a result. That's not an accident. I'm doing that on purpose. Uh-huh. This is what we're living right now, and I'm going to write about it. How do you think that's going to go over? You know what? Um, That question never occurs to me when I'm writing a book. Uh The book that I write has to be told. That story has to be told. It's a book I want to read myself. Mm -hmm. And when it's done, I put it out there. And if nobody reads it, nobody reads it. Um, I'll give you an example. The book that I just finished, The Tower of Bellwether Moss, available now, uh, has a book. See, Paul, you can promote yourself. There you go. <laughs> that book. So I, I do have a couple of tendencies. Inside joke. Yes, I, I do have a couple of tendencies in my my novels. Uh, one is there's always the wise woman character, right? Uh-huh. There's somebody that's like, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. Whether that's a literal fortune teller or just an old woman that's like seen it all. Uh-huh. Uh, that character is always there. And the other thing uh, that is always there is my main characters are readers, mm-hmm. and they always read books. And I talk about the books they're reading and how that impacts what they're thinking. Mm-hmm. And in many cases. They're reading books that don't exist that I've created in my head, and one of them in in this newest novel is called A History of Quarston, which is the estate that he is hired on mm-hmm. uh, to work. I wrote 
the history of Corston, supposedly published in the mid-1800s, six years ago. Mm-hmm. It's been out on Amazon for six years. I didn't tell anyone. <laughs> because what I wanted was when this book came out, somebody would go, is that a real book? And they'd look it up and find that it is. Uh-huh. And then they'd go look for it. Uh-huh. And, oh, it's been out for six, seven years. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. So is the anti-vaxxer in the 20s going to be pushing ivermectin or other horse medicines? Nope. They are literally only going to be pushing not taking that thing. So no crystals or orgone chambers or anything like that? Mm -mm. Nope. I shouldn't mention the ivermectin. That's the other thing you and I were talking about is the fact that it has, ivermectin has actually been prescribed by real doctors and there are human dosages and so that's one of those disingenuous things that For some things. For some things, yeah. It's like Cipro. Remember when Cipro was prescribed for, um, uh, what the hell was it? Anthrax after nine eleven and everything, and then and now Cipro is being prescribed for a number of things. Mm-hmm. These things happen. These things happen. Yeah, but you know, crystals and orgone chambers aren't going to work. Sorry. No, no. In my case, it's, that's never been prescribed. No, in my case, it's simply no. We're not going to take that because that's not the natural way. That's not how God created us. Mm-hmm. So we're just going to let things go as they are and let history. So I'm assuming that they don't wear glasses or anything either. They have like no. Oh, of course not. No. <laughs> there are issues with this philosophy, obviously. Uh-huh. So, um, what are some of the other projects you've been working on? You uh, usually are working on a lot of different stuff, and um, you know, you're following a lot of different creative paths. What are some of the other things that you got on your radar here? Well, um, the next book that will come out probably this month. Um, I have a series through a publishing house that I that I work with um, called Classroom Classics where we take uh, works of uh, public domain uh, genre fiction, so sci-fi, horror, fantasy, that sort of thing, and um, we footnote them and write study guide questions for them, put them out so that it can be used for classroom use, Mm -hmm. uh, because many times there are not classroom editions of that sort of a book. Um, So I've got, I think, 33 of those that we've done so far. The next one will be uh, Thoreau's Walden. Mm -hmm. Uh, We should hopefully finish that by the end of the month. Um, After that, I have a long uh, gestating collection of short stories based on fiction by both uh, H.P. Lovecraft and Harry Houdini, who worked together uh, at one point. Uh, So... Uh, publishing their fiction and uh, uh, also some new fiction uh, kind of keyed off of uh, some of those including a short story that I'm working on a novella that I'm working on where H.P. Uh, Lovecraft and Harry Houdini are basically buddy cops uh, <laughs> solving a murder mystery in, in New York City in the in the 20s so so in your research we're and I, I'm, I know that you know this has been the case. I've read this. There were a lot of people who were anti-vax at every instance that there were vaccinations, that there were mass vaccinations. There were people that didn't trust science, and they didn't trust the fact that medical doctors, which, which is why now it seems kind of ludicrous to me that people don't look back on the history of it and realize that, okay, well... At no other time during mass vaccination period did anybody end up, uh, you know, under the thrall of the Illuminati or anything. So I, I doubt it's going to happen now. Um, also, Bill Gates just doesn't find you all that fascinating to put a microchip in you. Right. Um, no, that's that's exactly true. You know, people had smallpox parties right. uh, mm-hmm. to try to get it all out of their yeah. system, you know. Uh-huh. Um, and we have uh, we had uh, eliminated smallpox, but it's uh, making a little comeback now right. thanks to... Uh, 
uh, people not wanting to uh, to take precautions. Um, so yeah, no, but through history, that is exactly true. Um, the the foremost medical knowledge has always been rejected mm-hmm. until it wasn't. Right. Until it was just seen as common sense. Correct. And then the next medical knowledge comes along and so that people reject that. Right. Um, you know, the the uh, vaccinations for the military, for example, I think is just uh, the, the, the ridiculous argument. You know, oh, how can you require the military to take this thing when, you know, you're going to weaken your military? The military literally has to take 12 inoculations yeah, yeah. just to have that job. Correct. Um, and this is just one more. And if you go and travel to another country, you have to take a lot of vaccinations, depending on sometimes, you know, if you're going to India or you're going to Africa, you have to take a lot yep. of vaccinations. Um, India, Africa, South America, there are a lot of things that just regular travelers have to do in order to travel to those countries. Right. Uh, absolutely correct. So you literally need a vaccine passport to travel to those countries. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And, th- and that's what I've said to people, and people are still kind of like, you know, whatever. I just, I don't know. I, I, you're missing the real conspiracies, folks. <laughs> Anytime somebody comes up with an incredibly elaborate conspiracy, I'm like, the conspiracy is right in front of you, and that's the fact that a small group of people who have an immense amount of money control the vast amount of all the resources on this planet and are continuing to utilize every means possible, psychological and what have you, to maintain control over the vast majority of the people on this planet and maintain that control. Exactly. The, the knowledge, the wealth, the land, the, the power uh, are very centrally concentrated. And that's that's the big conspiracy. Yeah. On the subject of conspiracies, you know, I, I'm I'm just ending my teaching career uh, this month, and uh, one of the things I always told my students when we do things like, um, you know, the JFK assassination or, or anything, it's like, was there a conspiracy uh, to kill JFK uh, by the the mafia? Yes. By um, Johnson? Yes, probably. Mm-hmm. By the CIA? Almost certainly. All of those conspiracies ex- existed. Did they do it? I don't think so. I think it was just some random crap that happened. And that's what most conspiracies turn out to be. Um, well, as soon as you have a, a conspiracy with two or more people, it's not it's a secret anymore. Mm-hmm. So we're, as a people, I mean, look at how horribly run some governments are, some businesses are, some media outlets are <laughs> and then imagine that they can control some vast conspiracy with the incompetency <laughs> that they already have it's it's nonsense it's nonsense although i think there's one thing we can all agree on and that's epstein didn't kill himself uh, epstein did not kill himself and birds aren't real <laughs> <laughs> any last words paul anything else you want to promote or put it out there uh, no, just uh, stay tuned to uh, to this website uh, for uh, news on when I'll be having uh, book signings in the in the coming few weeks before Christmas. Uh, you will see some interesting uh, things. Uh, I can tell you for sure that something will be happening at Wake Brewing. We just don't have a date uh, established yet, and there will be it looks like an associated beer to go along with this book release. So uh, that's going to be fun news. And so yeah, that'll be posted here on the site. Nice. Do you have a website of your own that you'd like to promote or anything, or tell people where they can go to? Get your books no i don't want people to find me <laughs> i'm good <laughs> you're just stand out in the middle of your garage with your books next to you and just yell to people and if anyone happens to hear then you'll know that it's kismet that they actually get to see your work I, i'm not above selling my books at a garage sale <laughs> no you should you be no should you be so is there do you still have the website though 
Um, I have a website for a publishing house, which is okay. which is uh, through Facebook. All, all of my websites are Facebook. Okay. Uh, so uh, I'm giving you the chance to promote all your shit it. here, I, Paul. Jeez. I get it. I get it. Well, no, we do have we do have a website for a publishing house that is necropolispress.com. Uh-huh. There you go. Uh, we also have a Facebook page, Necropolis Press and Splore Books. Um, if you want to find me in other places on Facebook, you can find me doing uh, Quad City Weather on FergieCast. You can find me talking about pop culture things on Fergus on Face. You can find my uh, recording studio at Casa Cthulhu Studios. Uh, you can find me, Paul Thomas Ferguson, as an author on uh, on a separate page. Um, I'm sure there's something... Oh, uh, I am also with uh, uh, Two Toms Two Productions, which does some uh, video production locally. Um, so yeah, we got a, got a few things out there. You could probably look me up. There you go. Thank you very much for being a guest on the show, pal. Thank you, Sean. And thank you for listening to QC Uncut. Uncut, unedited, uncensored podcasting, conversation with local newsmakers. My guest today was Paul Ferguson. Check him out on Facebook. Go online, get his books. Check out his new book when it's out. And He's got a lot of book signings coming up. You can get those. Get that info on quadcities.com. Thanks a lot for listening. I'm Sean Leary. Have a great day.